Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the first half of today's show, we're bringing back a segment we like to do on a semi-regular basis here, which is talk with local artists, filmmakers, people of note in New Haven about movies that they hold dear. Movies they've returned to again and again that they love to share and talk about and that have in some way influenced their own approach to making art. My guest today will be Matt Finer, the founder and owner of Devil's Gear Bike Shop in downtown New Haven and a visual artist in his own right. And we'll be talking about two movies close to his heart, the 1984 sci-fi road trip movie Starman and the 2005 romantic comedy The Girl in the Cafe. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a discussion of Little Men, a new movie from director Ira Sachs that offers two parallel perspectives on gentrification in 21st century New York, one from the vantage of an intimate childhood friendship, the other from that of quarreling parents forever in conflict over who has the right to live and rent in a rapidly changing Brooklyn. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio Matt Finer. Matt is a longtime New Haven resident, activist, and artist. He's the founder and owner of Devil's Gear Bike Shop downtown on Orange Street. And if I may beat him to the punch, he sometimes self-identifies as an unwilling and uncooperative court jester. <laughs> Matt, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's, it's an honor <laughs> to be here, Tom. Thank you. So for people, for the, the odd person in New Haven who may not know you or may not be aware of Devil's Gear Bike Shop already, tell me a bit about, about what you do down on Orange Street in Chapel on a daily basis. On a daily basis, uh, I run a bicycle shop, the Devil's Gear Bike Shop. Uh, we're uh, New Haven's premier shop. My day starts at 9 in the morning. My day ends at 7, hopefully, uh, with a bike ride. Uh, we work on everybody's bikes. Everyone is accepted. Could you get a bit closer to the mic right there? You're drifting. Yep. There we go. All Perfect. Right. Um, and we're a very busy little shop. Um, we started 18 years ago, and we've done a lot with Elm City Cycling to create more cycling culture, more riding culture, more everything bikes. Now, you are not just a cycling advocate here in New Haven. You're also a visual artist, and yes. you have displayed work at ArtSpace. You've been at The Grove. Um, tell me a bit about some of the art that you work on, the types of art, the mediums you work in. Um, art is actually what brought me back to New Haven, Connecticut from Austin, Texas. Uh, Paul Clabby wanted to show a couple pieces of mine uh, installations at uh, the Slade House on Trumbull. Trumbull Street, which actually just reopened, which is great. And uh, I put those installations together and showed them, and they were very well received. And then I segued into realizing that there really wasn't a lot of bike culture in New Haven. And I love bikes. Um, I started riding when I was 13. And so I decided to open a bike shop. Actually, yeah, I don't know if you saw, but Lucy ran a great article this morning about an uh, exhibition that No Pop, Laura Marsh, and Phil Liquie are holding at the Slate Eli this Friday. Great article. Um, and it's all about, unfortunately, they'll be leaving for Miami somewhat soon. So they are um, kind of displacing themselves from the city. But it is very exciting to see that place open again. It's such a, a beautiful building, let alone a place to to look at and think about art. Um, where where is it that you came back from? Where where did you go? Austin, Texas. I moved to Austin, Texas on a whim while delivering a piece of artwork down south. Um, this was 1992, and I breezed through Austin for three days and ended up by staying for four or five days. Hmm. And were you working at a bike shop there? Were you no, racing? No, I was making working art? in a cafe part-time and doing art, selling art, exhibiting art. Um, I was just living a very art life. Um, yes, it was great. I, so I, I'm afraid I, I've only seen the art, uh, your art, 
once. And that was at ArtSpace, I believe, for a, a kickoff event for Citywide Open Studios a couple years ago. You had a big collage of newspapers. But correct me if it was the New Haven Register, the New York Times, but these are print newspapers just displayed all over the back wall of ArtSpace. And I, you sent me a link to a podcast that you were on um, earlier this month called the Dis- Distraction Podcast. And one thing that I took away from it is that you said uh, you tend to hoard your own art. Yes. <laughs> you, t- you, you don't necessarily... Um, as much as you would like to share it with people, it tends to sit in, in your own place and maybe will be bequeathed to a lucky person uh, upon your, uh, pre- hopefully, demise in the distant distant future. <laughs> but, uh, but tell me about this. I mean, I, I remember really responding to that. It was a particularly trying year, as all years were, so there were a lot of headlines that were very disturbing to recall, um, a lot of images that had you know, a strong visceral impact, but what was it you're trying to accomplish when you s- string together a hundred different newspaper front pages? Um, all right, so that was a piece of a piece that you saw at ArtSpace. That was one third of the piece, I believe. That was the year 2014 piece, uh, where it was I take the New York Times every day for one year and make a collage out of it every day using a base of. Uh, an ad, a visual ad of a fashion model of some sort, and then add my four or five different uh, subject matters on top of it. And it, uh, at the end of the year, you have 365 of them, if you're lucky, if you get one every day. And uh, then you put them up in a room. Um, and so I actually, and I do a lot of huge pieces like that that never actually, I actually never show. Um, it's very rare that I show a piece. It's kind of a difficult balance to maintain. I imagine if the, the just the, the sheer size of your pieces are bigger and bigger, or at least you know quite noticeably large. But they're all staying within your studio, within your apartment. Do they ever crowd you out, or do you feel no, like they're a part uh, of? No, they very easily fit in boxes. I, and I show one or one a year. There's usually mm-hmm. one something. I, I showed something last October. The year before that, I showed something during Citywide Open Studios. Uh, of the majority of the art I do, you only see one. Per, one you're seeing one one fifth of it. Mm. Yeah. And where uh, where is the next opportunity that someone will be able to see? Oh, uh, I'll show art? during Citywide Open Studios at Gilbert Street, fourteen Gilbert Street, where my studio is. But you're not going to see any large installation. You'll just see smaller incidental works that I'm doing. Um, the one of the things I so love about your kind of omnipresence downtown is that I see you all the time at the grocery store, everywhere in the vicinity of Pickin Plaza. And I remember running into you at Elm City Market a couple weeks ago when I was wearing a best video and chill pin. <laughs> and so we started chatting about the meaning of that, but also about best video and how much you know we love movies. And you were telling me that when there was a blockbuster downtown or somewhere in the kind of greater New Haven area, you were the second most frequent customer yes. there. Um, can you tell me a bit about your experience with movies in New Haven and particularly with uh, movie rental stores or, or theaters? When you think about oh, I, your history with movies in the city, what, what comes to mind? I, lo- I love renting movies. I would prefer to rent a video or a DVD or a movie uh, as opposed to get it online like Netflix. So when I first moved to New Haven, there was a little tiny video store downtown, um, and I forget the name of it, but I believe it was run by Eric Epstein. And it was on Chaplin, and it's that little downstairs area. Um, and that was the video store. I forget the name of it. But then Best, when I discovered Best Video, when they were at their first location, they were huge. It was huge. That's where everybody went. You, you went there any day of the week, any night of the week, and you would run into people you knew, and they just had... It, uh, 
but because of the onslaught of Netflix, iPhone, whatever, it, it has reduced the need for video stores, which is really sad. So if you can support your local video store, go to Best Video, support video culture, support movie culture, go in there and talk with people about movies. That's what I love. You don't get that from Netflix. Okay. You don't get that from Rotten Tomatoes. You know what I mean? You go to Netflix, you go to, um, you go to Best Video and you get to talk movies with people. When we, and at one time, yes, I was the second highest renter at Blockbuster downtown. The only person who beat me out was a man who was a security guard who worked eight hours a day. So he would rent four movies a day and watch them on one of the monitors. And so like he was always, I rented two movies a night. He rented four. He was always gaining on me. He was always getting ahead of me. And it wasn't a contest or anything. It was just what I did. I watched two movies a night all the time. Is this something you, for someone as busy as yourself, I, I know that one of the things I like about movies is that when you start one, you know exactly how long it's going to take you to finish it. Yes. You know, it has a runtime. Like, All right, I'm committing two hours, an hour and a half to this thing. I'm going to throw myself into it, but I know that I have to commit at least this amount of time to watching it. As someone who is as active as yourself, uh, where, where do you find I the don't, time I, for I have a sleep movies? disorder, so I'm up, you know, I'm, and, and if I'm up, I'm going to watch a movie. You know, if it's like, I don't want to turn on the news, I don't want to turn on a television commercial. I want to watch a movie for that one reason for, because it's a, it's an amount of time and I sometimes don't make it through and I fall back asleep, which is great. And I wake up later on and the movie's still on. Um, I, yeah, that's why I'm able to watch two movies. You've mentioned best video and God bless them. They certainly have adapted with the times and they've become a cafe and a performance space and a nonprofit now. And they certainly know how to cater to their their very loyal audience and hopefully bring in more members but new haven also had a number of movie theaters not too long ago yeah. not just the criterion downtown but york square um and also the little theater going back but tell me yeah. about some of not just renting movies but your experience with oh movie God. theaters where'd you go what'd you like i lived at york square because i lived i worked at the daily cafe back a, a, a lot when the daily was in was open uh, before i moved and it would be nothing to get out of work at the Daily and just walk across the street to the York Square. And we, this is on Broadway where yeah, Urban Outfitters is right, right now. I believe that was an independent and art house movie theater. And it run was a by total old Arnold style Gold. movie theater. And what was really cool about it was, um, sadly and honorably, is they gave us from their marquee, their letters, they spelt out Devil's Gear Bike Shop and they gave it to us. So we have marquee letters that spell out Devil's Gear Bike Shop in, in a box in a shop. In the shop, that which is, is classic Matt Finer, because like I love movies, I love bikes, the Devil's Gear, and someone <laughs> coming to me and being like, "Here, we're closing. Take this. We gave this to you." Are, are those ever coming out of the box? They will. The we have Devil's to find Gear? a place for to put them up on the wall. Yeah. You know, it's like I've got so much. You you see the bike shop. The bike shops like my art, which is a huge collage, which is all sorts of imagery and stuff and objects, all crammed into a little space that tells a story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that may be a good transition to, you know, I'm, I'm eager to hear your thoughts on Starman and the Girl in the Cafe, but first I want to ask you one more question about your kind of relationship and history with movies, and that's, you know, as someone who um, is such an avid cyclist and kind of civil rights advocate downtown and also a visual artist, a, you know, maker of collages, what do you tend to respond to in movies? Why do you return to this art form besides just the you know, limited time commitment. Is there something, is there a type of movie that you find yourself returning to? Is it that editing that's kind of parallel to the assembling of a collage that you isn't kind of your artistic temperament is attracted to, or is it just a fun way to 
kill a couple hours. I guess at, at a base, um, I was a sickly child, so I watched a lot of movies when I was a child, um, and that's from an early age. So it, to me, it's a source of escape. Um, I love a movie that really takes you away, that you know gets you out of the reality of what's going on in the world currently. I love a very escapist movie. I love a movie with a great storyline, very in-depth character, you know, driven. I'm not a really, I'm not a shoot 'em up, bang 'em up movie watcher. I love my favorite films are almost just everyday occurrences that happen that remind you of the humanity of people and how great people can be. That's one of my favorite themes in movies is that person that rises up. Well, you are listening to Two People Rising Up, I hope, on WNHH 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Tom Breen, on Deep Focus, and we're talking with Matt Finer. And I think that's a great transition to the two movies that you picked today. That uh, you, uh, So I, I sent out a kind of solicita- solicitation of you to say, you know, what are two movies that you return to again and again that you really love, that kind of inspire the way you think about movies and about art and you pick Starman and The Girl in the Cafe. So let's start with Starman, and then we'll head over to The Girl in the Cafe. Oh, such great films. So uh, for those who don't know it, Starman, directed by John Carpenter, starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allens from 1984. Uh, and Jeff Bridges plays a shape-shifting alien who kind of crash lands near a lake in Wisconsin and then uh, gets Karen Allen to drive him out to Arizona to rendezvous with some aliens to uh, escape the probing and probably pretty aggressive u.s yeah. government but t- tell me a bit about why why you chose this i love one. this i love that movie um two great actors um re- at, at, a, at a young age doing some amazing work with a great director uh, great storyline karen allen um well th- you have to throw we have to remind uh, state that the the shape-shifting alien of jeff bridges uh, assumes the body and personality and character of Karen Allen's recently dead husband. So her husband comes back to life. I mean, that's just amazing. But, um, and her having to deal with that and the storyline, it's, you know, it's an A to B buddy movie in a weird way because they travel across country to get to this site that Jeff Bridges has to get to. And it's a phenomenal, uh, in the end love story, you know, sci-fi, Great story, great storyline, great soundtrack. You know, that classic like 1980s. A lot of synthesizer, yeah. uh, Sci-fi movie, well-directed, well-shot, well-lit. You know, just there's nothing, there's not a flaw in that storyline. So I think that the natural place to start with Starman for me is uh, the acting. And you can't, when you think about Starman, you can't escape the performance of Jeff Bridges which is one of the funnest performances and sweetest performances I've seen in a little bit. So he has such a precise take on an alien awkwardly inhabiting a human's body, the way yeah. that he kind of juts out his head a little bit too far and pulls his and shoulders walk, back. The way he walks and he's learning to walk. He's learning it all for the talking for the first time. And, and that's, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that movies as an art form succeeded so early on. And you think about the early silent comics, the Charlie Chaplins, the Buster Keatons, the uh, Harold Lloyds, right? They communicated that comedy through their physicality, through yeah. not just slapstick kind of falling on their face, but the, the very kind of precise and nuanced way that they can move a shoulder or raise an eyebrow and elicit a whole like emotional response from an audience. And I think Bridges, you know, when my expo- my initial exposure to Bridges was through um, The Big Lebowski, yeah. through some of his later works. Um, and he has this wonderful kind of grizzled, 
look that he uh, that he's working right now. But in the nineteen seventies uh, and eighties, he was he was quite a looker. I mean, yeah, he, he was, was a, a young, young leading man, a tra- but also you know? a very fun one. You know, a very funny one. One yep. who was not averse to making faces, and that's you know he pulls a lot of faces. That's part of the fun of. Uh, the star man learning about what it's like to be human. He watches a film of Jeff Bridges making faces at the camera. Yeah. Right. Um, was, was there something about the, the awkwardness of this character that you, di- I mean, we were talking earlier today about how sometimes it can be a bit difficult for you to be in very large groups of people to sometimes it's easier to pull back, sit at home, watch a movie. This character is, someone all about feeling his way through the world for the first time. And yeah. it's and like a child. To, and he wa- he's an explorer. He wants to put himself in situations. So that's why he so, makes himself so vulnerable through the entire movie. Everybody he encounters, he presents himself. You know, as this person, he has, you know, he has no idea who he's, like the guy in the bathroom, you know, uh, the man with the deer in the parking lot. He just presents himself, uh, you know, this is who I am. And yet he also does so much mimicking, right? I mean, the, yeah, what yeah, Car- right Carpenter does such, a, he does such a great job of lingering on hand gestures, right? Like yep. the guy at the gas station. The guy, the bird. The bird, or the <laughs> thumbs up saying, take it easy. Yep. And then, of course, my favorite scene in the movie, when he orders the Dutch apple pie, yeah. and the waitress leans in and gives him you know, the circle and fingers up right. saying, it's terrific. Yep, and he says it with his mouth full, it's <laughs> terrific. And, yeah. Um, and... and, and exactly and it's all these little subtle nuances of humanity that like his character sitting there dying talking to the the guy from seti when he says do you want do you want me to tell you what i find incredible about you and he's just so just so honest and vulnerable um and karen allen's acting through the whole like having to deal with the fact that her dead husband has just come back to life in front of her and having to you know, find some value of trusting this person enough only because he looks like her husband. And then the end of it where the final shot of her just being, you know, madly in love with him again. Karen Allen does not get short shrift by any means in the writing of this movie. And that's something I so appreciate it because she is playing some variation on a kind of vulnerable, beautiful heroine who is ostensibly kidnapped, although we soon find out that it's not exactly a kidnapping. But she is someone who... You know, she, we were introduced to her alone, kind of moping, just despondent, drinking wine by herself, looking at images of her dead husband. And then we see her go through this whole spectrum of kind of grief and reconciliation and then hope again and then having to give it up. But she and viewers may recognize her from the Indian Jones movies, from Animal House, and she's quite a familiar face. Uh, she doesn't have as many, you know, she's not pulling faces or offering as kind of subtle and i mean maybe maybe you disagree but i feel like bridges is who i'm really attracted to in this movie in that i i feel like i'm i'm meant to kind of identify with him in the way that he understands the world he makes me look at the world with new eyes as if it's for the first time yeah karen allen is trying is taking the step in the other direction she's explaining things that she takes for granted Mm -hmm. like what goodbye means you know what she's the straight man in the Mm -hmm. movie he's the comedian yeah, there's this the little subtle underlying you know thing that's going on between the two of them. There's comedy in the movie as serious as it gets. So another shout out to Best Video. I rented this from Best Video. I was talking with one of the clerks there, Rob Harmon, and I was saying it's difficult for me to reconcile this movie and the sweetness of it, the tenderness of it, the kind of goofy romance of it, and other movies that I've seen by John Carpenter, specifically right. Halloween. Right. I was thinking how how did these two things how did these come from the same 
director, and he directed me to Rob directed me to this essay by a film critic named Kent Jones. Uh, the the essay is called American Film Classic, but it he talks about some themes that Carpenter's interested throughout his career. And I I have to quote at least just one short sentence from Kent Jones in which he's talking about how the the landscape in um, in Starman conveys so much about the characters. The, what's yeah. happening behind them is as important as what's happening between them. And he says that Starman offers a child's vision of America at night without the Spielberg glow. From the rolling greenery of Wisconsin to spacious western truck stops to the hushed, gorgeous light of Arizona, this movie is just as kind of relishing its American landscapes as That's it is well said. Yeah. The, the romance. Is that something that you respond to? Oh, yeah. In this movie? I love watching. Uh, I'm very aware when I watch a movie of what's going on in the background of where they are and whether it's believable. Uh, but also, and if it's believable, it totally sucks me in. Like, I love the southwestern landscape when they go through their you know when they go through new mexico monument valley right those buttes go through you know and they wind up some i've been to the crater there so like i love watching that scene and that building's still there which is cool so i see the building and it's that's the tourist building you know where you go in to pay your money to go see the crater um i've been through that whole area and it's they don't miss a they go through winslow it's just phenomenal film he really put a lot of thought into the shots and especially when they're riding in the back of that truck after they've escaped oh, from the road stop. And, and it's it, cold. It's cold. The wind's blowing through the hair. Yep. So you see the buttes in the background and they're holding a baby. They're talking about yep. like the beauty and mystery of the world. And uh, again, this is something from Rob. He said, you know, he learning from John Ford, John Carpenter knew that landscape tells something about character. And yep. looking at a few of those scenes, they're just... Yep. Everything was stripped stripped down to just them. Yeah. Um, another... Uh, theme mentioned in this Kent Jones article. He talks about Carpenter's often interested in the sudden and unexpected arrival of something evil. If you remember Mike Myers in Halloween, you know, all of a yep. sudden you have someone terrorizing this, you know, placid, you know, happy, completely regular suburban town yeah. uh, in Illinois. And because of some, you know, sexual trauma, he's, he's wreaking havoc everywhere. Here, there's it winds up not being an evil presence but one of the things i so loved about the beginning of starman that transformation scene when he takes on the body of the baby yeah. and then evolves yeah. there's an actual fear in karen allen's eyes right oh and yeah she she's, looks afraid this could yeah. be something evil yeah but there's the man from the government who's the evil element he's the you know he wants to take the alien apart he wants to catch the alien he says it right from the beginning he's the evil element but unfortunately the person playing that character that that great not that believable there, I wanted something. I want it, honestly. You can't go back and redo it. I wanted someone a little more menacing. Yeah, and that definitely seemed like a the ch- the chase element was definitely secondary to the road trip movie yeah. element to it, yeah. right? I mean, what's happening between Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges? Yeah, they're they're being and again the chase at the end to the crater with the helicopters descending upon them and the shootout. Uh, there's a lot of you know kind of western style drama to that that yeah. I appreciated the way it was framed and shot, but. I agree with you. That relationship between Bridges and Alan is where it's at. Um, any before we leave Starman, any favorite scenes? Or actually, you know, I love think, the ending when, yeah. when they pull back from her looking up at the you know she, the, that slow pullback, and you see the light change as the UFOs moving away, and it's just her looking up at they. What a great shot, you know. And uh, very and this is before CGI, so you know that's an honest shot. That's just a camera pulling back and them changing the light on her. You know, and the, the the glow in her eyes, everything going on around her. You can hear, you can see the snow moving around. It, it's a phenomenal, it's one of my favorite shots in moviedom. 
there doesn't have to be a you know specific lesson you take away from this movie or any others, but thinking about you know this movie as one that you picked because ostensibly it influences the way that you think about your own art, or maybe maybe it does, mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't. But how you know thinking about Starman, how does various things or performances discussed in that kind of channel its way into you know when you are standing in front of a, a canvas or oh, a that movie has an other mo- some movies have yeah. Uh, but that film hasn't. That's a very escapist movie for me. That's like, you know, lost love. Well, and sci-fi, <laughs> and road trip, and, and Jeff road Bridges, trip, and yeah. New Mexico. So, well, the other movie that you picked is another romantic movie. Maybe more. Maybe it falls a bit more closely within the genre of romantic comedy. I'm interested to hear your take on it. But this one is The Girl in the Cafe, directed by David Yates from 2005. I think a made-for-TV movie. I think it was made for HBO. I can, yeah, yeah. I think it was, yeah. And written by Richard Curtis, who is kind of a staple of the romantic comedy genre. He wrote Love Actually and Four Weddings and a Funeral, yeah. um, Notting Hill. But maybe you tell me a bit about what is this movie about and, and why did you pick this it? This movie has a lot of irony. It was, um, I always think of a movie a, a, at the... Uh, December 31st, I generally think, oh, what was my best movie? What was my favorite movie this year? And I generally look back on my year. And what's ironic is on December 31st, of a bunch of years ago, I watched this movie for the first time, and it was my favorite film of that year. It totally caught me off guard. The re- and what took me there was I was following links on Kelly McDonald, who's from Train Spotting and from... Uh, no, uh, no, no country, country for old men. men. Yeah, that's right. right. I didn't know um, she's. And she's got a big, thick British. She got a big, thir- big, thick Scottish accent. You don't even hear it in No Country for Old Men. She she does a Midland accent perfect. Um, but all right. That being said, um, that's what took me to that movie. I went up to Best Video, rent it, took it home, watched it, and just fell in love with it. It was an amazing movie. Um, I'm so sorry, and Bill... I'll even use the word film. It was just phenomenal. Bill Nye is mm-hmm. as the awkward worker that meets the girl in the cafe who's mysterious and he's just so awkward and i relate to him in that and his whole mannerisms everything um them going out them meeting them be you know and then her suddenly becoming the activist at the you know i can't i don't want to say too much about this movie out loud because i want people to watch it and be surprised as to what happens um at when they you know, when they meet up and get together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, de- I mean, definitely. It takes a, a turn that I did not expect for a movie that has you know, such a prominent kind of meet cute in a cafe right. in London. This is, you know, as you're saying, Bill Nye plays this lonely, idealistic kind of financial analyst who works for the British Exchequer. And he falls to this girl in the cafe, takes her to a conference, and then the girl, yeah. you know, she kind of proves uh, that she is not just a pretty thing to look at, but someone who is as concerned about the issues Yeah, that the best thing you can Bill say, the in. least you can say without giving it to my, it turns out she's an activist. And she realizes she had, not. No, I don't even think she's an activist. I think she just realizes she has an opportunity to be an activist. Mm. She realizes she's sitting there and all of a sudden is like, wait, I have the opportunity to change the world right now. And does it. And I don't think she would have done that had she not been put in that position. Or who knows? You know, it's a movie. Again, as with Starman and starting with Jeff Bridges, I can't help but start with Bill Nye's performance Uh in The Girl in the Cafe because, again, it's such a precise depiction of awkwardness, of being being uncomfortable in one's own body. The way he lopes and tilts and leans. Everything. You can tell he thinks out every little movement. You know, move this way, turn head this way, lift the cup this way. You know, he... 
He's such a nervous bird, and uh, I can totally relate to that. Even the moments of happiness. Do you remember when she agrees to come with him to Iceland, and he gets that little jump? Maybe two feet off the air, and his yeah. knees are tucked in. And I love it when they're out for the walk, and he's talking about you know this dream he keeps having about being asked to be the Rolling Stones guitarist. Oh, that was it my was, favorite scene. It, it was right. just, and, and it turns out that's an honest. That's a, actually when you read, you get further into this movie. It turns out that's just a actual dream he has. Yeah, he said improvise, and he goes, "Oh, okay, I've got." And he made, he tells her this dream that he has. Right. So he, this again, awkward, very buttoned up financial analyst, telling this girl of his dreams that he dreams every night about the Rolling Stones coming to him and asking him to inject a bit of new sound. Like, Mick, <laughs> right. We to... need a new sound, Mick. You know, and he's like, he's got this. Right. Now I'm where I'm going to quibble with you a little bit is on the Kelly McDonald character. As much as I love oh, you, the conversations between the two, I love the cafe sequences, that diagonal kind of the yep. pattern about um, you know every every bit of kind of physical demonstration being some way of seducing, of pulling back, of pulling forward. I feel like no matter the activism that we see in the Kelly McDonald character as the movie progresses, she felt to me unfortunately, like an afterthought to the Bill Nye character. This is told specifically from his perspective about what he's interested in accomplishing in his life. And she, as interesting a background, you know, I don't want to hear like every every bit of her back history. I don't need that in every movie, but I still feel like she, whereas Karen Allen had the whole like emotional range and backstory and like character development to her, I feel like Kelly was almost more of someone, she, she served, Bill Nye's character's needs more than she, I felt like she was an actual person in her own right. But is yeah, that... It, um, I think there was a lot to her that? character uh, that is hard for people to relate to. She just got out of prison. She had just injured her her man, as she said. You know, you find out towards the end of the movie that, you know, um, she's someone readjusting to being in society uh, and being and readjusting to freedom. And she's a very quiet character. And she's right? quiet she does a lot of listening. And she's cautious. And, you can, and I think the way they play her out um, is interesting because there's, there's so much underneath her that you don't get. And you know something really traumatic went on. And she's, she's the calm wave of the really rough undercoat. And she conveys that through her acting as well. I mean, every, yeah. she has perfected that facial expression of... Uh, regret of like contrition before she's done anything wrong. I yeah. mean, every time she's she's so anxious about making the smallest of mistakes and yeah. and the front and the I think it's a wonderful them, performance. The but. two of them are just two little nervous birds meeting up. You know, it's so adorable the way they meet and the way it goes forward. And um, but, you know, him sitting there fretting over calling or sitting right. there trying to figure out if he you know does he call her? Does he call her? Does he call her? Does he call? You know, he's like. It, you know, it's a lot of a lot of people have been through. I can relate to it. You know, it's like it's nervousness. And this movie is also explicitly about people interested in combating world poverty. I mean, yeah. the mission of this guy's life, and I think of the movie as well. And I'm interested to hear whether this is something that resonates with you. Whether you think the movie does it well is you know challenging people, especially people in kind of Western European and American nations who are perhaps middle class or middle class complacent with all of the kind of destitute poverty that is ravaging, you know, countries and communities yeah, around the world on a daily it. basis. It is trying to, you know, poke that audience to get them to, to think about it a bit yeah. more. Do you think this movie succeeds in that? Did- uh, I don't think it does. Uh, uh, it, it's not American enough. It didn't hit home enough as an American movie. It's very, you know, European. <laughs> it's very British. Very, um, and unfortunately there is a huge problem with, you know, poverty and 
um, there's not enough food for people and it's it's a lot of so many political reasons for this not happening and it's just such an unjust occurrence that's going on right now in the world and it could be ended very quickly um, and suddenly we're we're drifting really rapidly into politic talk and I can get really political really quickly <laughs> well I, but I something that I admired about this movie and I've been grappling with is that ostensibly again it fits within the mold of a romantic comedy but then on the second half it's all about provoking those you know yeah. political thoughts that dialogue it's not just interested in the romance which is great and fun and charming but it's also saying here's the whole thing that you know these people aren't just um you know stock romantic comedy characters they're actually trying to make a difference in yeah. the world and yeah, I, I ultimately I'm inspired by that. I think I think that's a cool thing for a romantic comedy to try to yeah, do. Yeah, if I think any, if I, if I believe a if a film or a piece of artwork or a uh, play or something can turn someone in and activate somebody to to either seeing a plight the plight of a people, the fight of a people, um, the need for the attention of people. Uh, I if something if you get that out of a movie, film, piece of artwork, then great, go with it because there are so many things that need to be pointed at right now in the world are, are, you know, and we're being diverted from that. And we really need to get back to focusing on the problems. Unfortunately, we're nearing the end of the conversation, Matt. I so appreciate you coming in and chatting about these two movies with me. I have one more question for you before you yes. go though. And that's, we were talking a bit about this off air before, um, what did before you the show. Last night? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll all hear about that after the show, but for someone who has spent so much time in New Haven and as a really active member of the arts community, um, what kind of film culture do you see in New Haven now? And what do you think would make this city a more hospitable place for New, people? New Haven has amazing uh, independent film culture. People don't realize it. Um, people need to come out and see it more. Not just the 48-hour film festival. There's a lot of programs going on right now about independent film, filmmaking, filmmaking classes. People just need to come out and investigate it, come out and explore it, and come out and be part of it, even if you're just an audience member, because there is so much going on. Go online right now. The 48-hour film festival, I think, is showing... Actually, tonight. Tonight. Their best of screening. They're showing their best of screening, which they make some phenomenal films. I was blown away. I was asked a couple years ago at the last minute to come on and be on Ryan's Laquinko's everyone yeah, leaves on me his team, and I played a dead body for 25 minutes, um, which was ironic. And I was surprised at the level of professionalism. Not only their sound crew, their lighting crew, everything, their directorial, their production. I, I, I felt like I was walking into a professional movie set, which I was. Matt, if people want to learn more about what you do, where you work, what kind of stuff you recommend in New Haven, can you point them anywhere, whether your shop or any, uh, well, read anywhere the online? New, read, read the New Haven ad, uh, Independent, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> New Haven I mean. Independent.org. Read, read, read the Independent, because that's where you get your news. Um, I would just say, you know, become part of New Haven. Come out and be do stuff. You know, stop by the bike shop. Which is where? Uh, 137 Orange Street, right down the street uh, in the center of town. Uh, come out for events, come out for Shakespeare in the Park, come out for the pizza festival, come out for the bike race coming up, come out for the Smila. There's so many things going on in New Haven. New Haven is like, it's it's bustling. You, there's something to do every night. Matt Finer is the owner and director of the Devil's Gear Bike Shop, a visual artist and just a New Haven enthusiast. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Tom, I'm honored. Thank you very much for having me. All right, coming up next uh, is a review of the new movie Little Men with Lucy Gellman and Alan Appel. But first, let's hear a little bit of an Ellison Jackson song called Man from Lowell.
Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Little Men, a new movie from director Ira Sachs, describes a specific example of gentrification from two parallel perspectives. On the one hand, we have two 13-year-olds, Jake and Tony, played by Theo Taplitz and Michael Barbieri, who become fast friends after Jake and his family move into the Brooklyn apartment directly above Tony's mom's dress shop. Jake is delicate and soft-spoken, Tony's confident and gregarious, but both have artistic aspirations and recognize in the other a playmate and a confidant. On the other hand, Jake's dad and Tony's mom, played by Greg Kinnear and Paulina Garcia, are in an uncomfortable but rapidly escalating feud. Jake's dad, a conflict-averse actor who feels like he's missed his prime, has inherited the Brooklyn apartment building from his recently deceased father. And Tony's mom, a chain-smoking dressmaker from Brazil, is correctly concerned that she will be evicted to make way for new tenants who will be able to pay a much higher rent. The neighborhood's changing, the kids thrive off this intersection of differences, but the parents find in it only another venue for that bare-knuckled fight for economic survival. Alan, one longtime commentator on the New Haven Independent, loves to return to the idea of the gentrification vampires. (laughs) Usually young, affluent white people who flock to certain neighborhoods or cities because of the cultural cachet of living in that part of town, paying higher rents, displacing often poorer or middle-class minority communities, and sanitizing that area of everything that they found attractive about it initially. In this movie, do you see a portrait of gentrification vampires descending upon an apartment building in Brooklyn, or does director Ira Sachs paint a slightly more nuanced portrait of the tension between landlords and tenants, Manhattanites, and Brooklyn natives? Well, I think that if if you look at this movie through the um, through the eyes of gentrification, um, it, it it would be like um, it would be like trying to uh, review Cherry Orchard as a movie about uh, taking down a forest to build a development. 
So I, you know, so I don't think that's a that's a rich way to 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 look at the film. It's it's the context, and it provides a, um, uh, you know, a sort of an interesting lens to look at the movie through. And um, and I'm sympathetic with that kind of uh, uh, class warfare move from uh, you know trying to get to Brooklyn in a bigger apartment. But that's not what the movie is about any more than, um, as I say, Cherry Orchard or The Seagull is about uh, uh, seabirds. Lucy, one of the things I so liked about this movie was how it used that the narrative of gentrification to explore the kind of relationship dynamics between people, between adults and children, the perhaps identifying what is what's different, maybe what's lost as we age about the honesty with which we treat other people, maybe the self-consciousness and the hesitation that we adopt and the complete, you know, aversion to conflict that some people feel that leads them only towards kind of deeper and more acrimonious conflict. Do you agree that with with Alan that gentrification is more of just a side story here or maybe a side way into more interesting kind of interpersonal relationships or were you riveted by uh, that story that is kind of common all around the country? I mean, I, I was and I wasn't. I think one thing that you are getting at is that this is a movie that is so beautifully done because it operates in nuances. And I think one of those things that, it, so one of the, one of the things that it treats is gentrification without saying this is a movie about gentrification. You know, it, it didn't feel like a documentary about what's going on in the Brooklyn's and Queens of the world right now. It, it felt like a movie about a, an honest debate in which I think the director was genuinely interested in painting both sides. Although, um, Although definitely you you think at the end of the day that the people who want their $3,300 rent from a dressmaker who clearly cannot provide that sort of money, like they are the villains. They are the bad guys a little bit. Um, but, but this is a movie that really is interested in, I think, turning, uh, turning a rock over and, and seeing what's under it and, um, and, and looking at... Um, relationships between people so the parents but then especially the boys and and this beautiful homosociality that blooms between them in a in a very honest and sort of unvarnished way alan if uh i i think that one one venue into the story is gentrification but another is looking at how people aspire to be artists or maybe reflect upon their own artistic temperaments so we get a couple speeches especially at the end about what is required to be an artist but i i love over the course of the movie we get three different you know very different portraits of what it means for someone to try to exist as you know a creative person if not professionally um but then i don't know temperamentally we have michael barbieri playing tony who is this young gregarious he reminds me of like a young al pacino and how outspoken he is how how much fun he has in acting the way that he just thrusts himself into every social encounter and uses acting as a way to express this this big personality then we have jake who's much more timid who's you know pensive sits by himself and and does a lot of drawing and then we have the dad the dad who thinks of art as something that is maybe a bit rarefied as a bit uh, reserved for, if not a, a wealthy elite, it's reserved for people who understand the symbols behind every single character. And I, I felt like this was a wonderful depiction of three very different approaches to art, and I know which one I found the most enjoyable. But I wonder, if were you also thinking about how 
artists are described in this movie or was there something else that pulled you? Actually, I haven't even heard if you like the movie or not. So maybe Yeah, I like I, <laughs> I like the movie. I think I think if I were if I were you know writing a a, a review with actual uh, printed words in the independent I would I would I would say it was um delicate but but ultimately diffident. Mm-hmm. The, the, see, I'm dropping all these hints here and you're not picking up on it. This what this movie really is is Chekhov brought to the screen. It's Ira Sachs, the director whose work, alas, I, I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm intrigued by. It really is transferring um, a Chekhov play and, the, and a Chekhov sensibility to explore, to move in a kind of ensemble fashion from the relationship of the boys to each other, the boys to um, uh, the, the various parents, the, the dressmaker, and uh, her relationship with the dead father, uh, 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 Greg Kinnear's his character's grandfather, which triggers the whole story. But so, it, and I think it, also the role of the artist. I mean, Chekhov often has a character, an aspiring artist, someone oh, who. Well, is, that's the whole is, thing. Is, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and let's not forget that what play is 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 the Greg Kinnear character, and he's Trigorin in, in the, the seagull. seagull, and he talks about the seagull uh, endlessly. And in and in fact, what the play is all about, what Chekhov is all about, and this is sort of it, it's the it's the strength of the movie, but the weakness of the movie is that. It's very difficult to do on the stage, where if you do it right, it's wonderful. But I think it's nearly impossible to do Chekhov on the screen because it's so quiet. Um, so, But what the movie is really about, in answer to your question, um, uh, everybody, it's not just your artistic aspirations. Everybody is yearning for something just out of reach. And that's sort of like the human condition. And we get to see the different things that are out of reach, whether it's uh, to stay in the building for the dressmaker or to get into LaGuardia Music and Art, which, by the way, is not such a great school. My daughter went there. That's a tip to all our the, the parents who want to send their kids there. Think again. Email me. I'm happy to talk to you about it. But to get well, back this is on, a movie, so I guess we have to suspend our discussion. To get back on subject. No, so, so the, the movie... Um, Kudos to the movie for trying, but what it what what it what Chekhov does often, and what this movie does, but less successfully, because it's a movie, is that it teases you with all these relationships and every single one, and it doesn't have. Uh, it's decided not to pursue any of them. I think that one of the big strengths of the movie, what distinguishes this, you know, manifestation of this type of story in this medium, is that movies capture movement. They capture kind of gliding, a camera moving, a person moving a person moving through the city, kind of exploring themselves through the capture of that movement. And I think the best scenes in this movie, I think I'm quite a bit more positive on it than you, but the the scenes in which Tony and Jake are scootering and rollerblading around the city, these 15-second, 30-second digressions that are silent except for the sound of the city and are almost abstracted with the blurred background of everything moving, usually in the opposite direction, of these two kids who are racing to get home, who are racing down the boardwalk towards the Verrazano Bridge, um, beautiful shots of the bridge who are, and I yeah. would endorse what you say the, the but, sequences uh, in the subway are spectacular but Lucy tell me about the depiction of movement here did, did that kind of transcend whatever um, Alan is seen in its attempt at maybe a theatrical representation of something that movies don't do so well yeah well I mean I, I think I would also fight Alan uh, un, unseen this is a not so successful uh, not adaptation uh, but maybe take on Chekhov because I think where in the United States better to put a, uh, you know, something with a Chekhovian feeling behind it than a, a just very quickly 
uh, changing and sort of turbulently changing New York City. Um, but as far as movement, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's something very specific about the way these young, trim bodies move effortlessly through different neighborhoods in New York City, that as you get older, you start thinking about, you know, um, even even the mother says, well, he can't, um, Tony can't spend the, the night or Tony can't walk home late because he's not safe walking home through these neighborhoods. And that's something that uh, for the boys almost never comes up, or if it comes up, it's really, really an afterthought. I thought the sequences of movement were so beautiful, so balletic in this movie. And, um, and, and for me, they were also really a testament to thoughtful cinematography that, um, and, and thoughtful artistic design that and had gone into this. Alan was talking about that theme of always yearning for something just out of reach. During those sequences of movement, this is the ephemeral. This is something that is here and then it's gone. It's a rare moment where these kids can exist in a present with one another and they don't have to worry about what you know whatever it is that they are aspiring to or can't quite reach. This is time that they spend together. Now, not to say that you know this is a lesson one should always be running places and that's how to lead a happy life, but I think that the way that this movie conveys the rare moments of kind of connection and happiness that these kids have, it's through the, the rolling around in the city. Lucy, you're giving me something to, you have something to say well yeah I, I think it's it's also not a mistake that they're using two uh modes of transportation that really are kind of specific to youth or at least a youthful mindset they're using a skateboard and they're using rollerblades and and that's you know they're not on their bikes and um and and i think that's something that the director thought about i i don't think that that was just a like oh we have this and it's a fortuitous you know coincidence if anything if anyone picks anything up but in, in Chekhov plays, you're, you're always hearing the chopping of the wood in the distance or you're hearing the din of the sea or something. So, so my, my point is only that, um, you know, the, 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 another way to look at this, this, this um, skillful gliding of the camera, which I think is, is really skillful. You can tell this is a director who knows what to do with the camera, is that in many ways it, uh, um, uh, it compensates for the lack of dramatic action in movie terms and 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 i actually what i really resent is um a lot of those uh, sequences of movement are accompanied by really loud percussive uh music which is it's uh, again i think it feels like a compensation for a movie that when that's not happening uh it tends to uh, fall into a kind of quietude and um that's because Chekhov is quiet and you when you experience it and when it's live in the theater and you're there, you, you sort of are very close to these people. Um, and on the screen, even though the faces are 39 feet high, you know, when, 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 when um, the actor, when the Greg Kinnear character confronts um, uh, the... Uh, uh, Paulina Garcia. Uh, yeah, Paulina Garcia. And, and, and that really kicks the movie dramatically. You know, when he knows, he basically tells her, you got to pay, pay the rent or will evict you. That's the first time about an hour into the film when there's really a dramatic feeling and, and, and uh, that's, the, you know, that's the strength and the weakness. I, I think that you're, you're missing some of, the, I, I wouldn't say that the scenes of movement are compensating for a lack of action. I think that they're kind of interpolated carefully in the story as a way to 
balance and kind of comment upon what is the the drama, maybe the subtler or the softer drama that is happening in, in these kids' lives. And I think that one beautiful moment of drama that is not around the gentrification story, but that we get to see, this is really a tour de force performance from this young actor, Michael Barbarian. He's just so much fun to watch when he is at acting school, right? And when he is doing an exercise with one of his teachers in which he is mimicking everything that the guy says, trying to throw back with as much gusto as possible, the different lines, you know, he's, this is an exercise where he has the director right up in his face saying, you know, it's, it's almost difficult to tell whether he's actually chastising the kid or this is part of the exercise, but he's telling him, you know, you sit down and then he throws back, no, you sit down and this is the end of the exercise. No, this is the, you know, I thought that was a wonderful moment of kind of an explosion of energy that was not, again, not necessarily related to the drama happening between the parents, but I think shows just the like vivacity and vival- uh, vitality of this young character and what draws him to art, to hanging out with it, what he enjoys in life. Did scenes like that, did they come too far and few between or few and far between Lucy for you? Or No, I, I didn't think so. I thought the energy was actually pretty well dispersed during this. And, um, and, and on the music point, you know, I'm totally willing to say that maybe this makes me a sentimental sap but I thought the music that accompanied the boys' movement through the city, which was composed for this, was um, was really deliberate. It it was that kind of loop that uh, you're comforted by, that you almost want to crawl into, you know, that has like maybe slightly soft edges. And I was thinking of it as someone who reports on music. And, you know, when you hear that kind of uh, loop over and over again, it starts like resonating through the very core of you. And I, I think that maybe that's something that the folks behind, you know, the creative folks behind the movie were thinking about. Alan, was there a particular, so we've talked about Michael Barbieri a little bit, a little bit of Greg Kinnear, but what did you think of Paulina Garcia as Leonor, as the mother of Tony, who runs this dress shop on the street level apartment where she's being oh, she's, evacuated or she's evicted. Ter- she's terrific. And, you know, mm-hmm. she's, uh, I think it's Chilean that she's, uh, not Brazilian. Oh, my mistake. I think it's Chilean. Uh, that, and she's she's wonderful. I love her. Uh, I don't know if she's acting or it's her, her, her way of speaking English. And frankly, the slow leakage of information about what her relationship is or has been to Greg Kinnear's father is one of the most powerful Chekhovian uh, tropes, I guess you'd call it, in the film. And when finally he, she tells him uh, the reason your father did not go to the birthday party was that he did not want to go to your house because everything in your house, you know, you actor in Chekhov plays, was bought by your wife. That, that's big time powerful. That's a, those those are that those are powerful scenes. They're, unfortunately, there are only about three of them in the film. But I do love how she becomes only becomes wonderful. more aggressive as the as the fight prolongs. Right, this isn't a reconciliation where two characters are moving closer to one another. She, if Greg Kinnear's character is trying to get out of conflict by any means necessary, she's looking to overwhelm him. Even though she may be just as afraid, um, I I love. But how aren't she, you unhappy? She always it's, not, it's not resolved, Tom. I mean, what happened to them? Yeah, well, just I mean, what I, happened to them? Uh, yeah, did the boys remain friends, and who got into college? And are the boys gay? And uh, and um. Uh, what's going to happen between uh, the Greg Kinnear character and his sister, who feels like uh, she did she got the short end of the inheritance? There's so much that um, it's funny. Maybe you one expects more resolution from a film than from a mm. from from a play. So I, you know, I I felt like uh, I was shocked uh, in in a way 
you know, it's nice to be shocked. It's hard to be shocked except by terrible news, but I, uh, these days, but I was shocked by the ending of the movie. I thought it was less resolution than simply snipped off. Hmm. And re- I thought the part that was resolved was the relationship between the young boys. That this, how, resolved we, how? And that they're severed. I mean, they have lost this kind of youthful homosociality is one way Lucy put it, but this very intimate friendship that is no more. And I thought that, you know, this is a, a slice of life that we don't see everything in all strands come to an end, but I feel like that relationship, which was the focus of the movie, is is no more. Well, I'm long. afraid that this show is also no more because we've got to wrap up. But um, I hope I didn't get into LaGuardia. <laughs> uh, you recommend it? Yes, no, Lucy. Yeah, no? yeah, absolutely. See this movie if for no other reason. Uh, see this movie for uh, for Paulina Garcia. But um, <laughs> but do see this movie. I, I would say of everything I've seen this year, it definitely makes the top three. I don't even have a top five, so so I would highly recommend it. Oh, absolutely. But read The Seagull by Chekhov before or after. Alan, Lucy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank Thank you. you, Tom.